Coming up this week on the Thomas Jefferson Hour, Clay, you have a one-on-one conversation with one of our favorite correspondents to the Jefferson Hour, Mr. David Nicandri, and you talk about Captain Cook and a recent discovery. Captain James Cook, of course, was the most important navigator of the Enlightenment, but recently the Endeavor, one of Cook's ships, has been found deep under the water in Rhode Island. And you discussed that. I, I guess there's some controversy about whether or not it is, in fact, the ship. I think it is the Endeavor, but there's controversy now about who gets credit for it and when we are certain enough to announce it. Unfortunately, that boat cannot be brought up to the surface after all this time in that muck. It's in very, very bad condition. But it's a great discovery in the world of Captain James Cook and in the world of exploration. Please join us for all that and more on this week's Thomas Jefferson Hour. Good day, citizens, and welcome to What Would Jefferson Do? Our weekly opportunity to discuss history and American events with President Thomas Jefferson, who is seated across from me now. And good day to you, Mr. Jefferson. Good day to you, citizen. Mr. Jefferson, it seems that human beings are driven by the need for discovery, exploring the world that we live in. And there are a number of explorers that I know you followed very closely. The world must be known. You know, for a long time, humanity existed in in a very localized state in Europe, and beginning with the discovery of the compass and the mapping of the world, uh, the, the the famous voyages of Magellan and Francis Drake and Columbus and Henry Hudson and so on, we began to understand that there was much of the world that had never been seen by Western eyes, and even in my own time. Uh, There were two notorious examples of this. One was the American West. We knew almost nothing about the interior of this continent. That's why I sent Lewis and Clark up the Missouri in 1804 and others along the Red River and the Wichita River and and the the, the Arkansas River and so on. But also, uh, much of the oceanic world was yet unknown, and, and no person in history did more to resolve the remaining mysteries of the oceans than Captain James Cook, who began his life in a very humble way, uh, hauling coal from Newcastle to London, but went on to become the most successful and competent ocean explorer in human history. Well, that spirit of discovery certainly exists in my time. In fact, Mr. Jefferson, if you can imagine... There is a telescope that has been launched into space on a rocket. It took years and years and billions of dollars to construct. But this telescope is going to give human beings the ability to see back in time as light travels. Uh, some say as, as, as far back as 4 billion years. Uh, scientifically, this must fascinate you. Can you imagine such a thing, sir? No. Not really. We had telescopes, of course. The first telescopes came in the 16th century, and Galileo is said to have one of the first. With it, he discovered the moons of Jupiter, the famous Galilean satellites of Jupiter, and irregularities on the moon, and and much else that really shattered the old Ptolemaic view of the cosmos. So we had good telescopes in my time. I owned a couple myself, but nothing of the sort that you 
are uh, describing. And, and we didn't know the size of the universe. We didn't know the age of the universe. We really didn't even know the speed of light. So we were groping in the dark with interesting, but by your standards, primitive instruments that you would be able to have a telescope that could see that much is one thing that's within the realm of possibility of grinding glass and reflectors and so on, but that you would put it into space would be, well, science fiction, really, to anyone living in my time, the idea of a rocket, we, you know, we had small rockets, but the idea that you could send a payload beyond the atmosphere of the Earth, we would have thought that an impossibility. I think it's such an amazing accomplishment that these scientists have achieved. I can't understand why it isn't the first story on every newspaper every day. We'll be seeing what you discover. You know, is there the possibility of life elsewhere? I would doubt that, but you can't rule it out. Are there other planetary systems in the world? You know, the space was not very deep for us. We didn't really understand that the universe was essentially infinite in all directions. And it would have frightened us to make that discovery. And so we were using the best telescopes that we had, and we could almost see the rings of Saturn, and we could see the outer planets to a very small extent. Herschel was doing the most extraordinary work with telescopes in my time, and that was in Britain. But the discoveries that we made would seem pitiful to any true astronomer of your time. Well, sir, we will have to plan to discuss this in depth at a future time. It's a fascinating subject and one that would have greatly interested me and, and my friend David Rittenhouse of Philadelphia. Thank you very much, Mr. Jefferson. You are welcome, sir. Hey, citizens, and welcome to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, your weekly conversation with or about President Thomas Jefferson. However, this week, we have the return of one of our favorite guests, our correspondent, Mr. David McCandry. And without giving away too much of the conversation this week, Clay, you and David talked because of news reported about one of Captain Cook's ships. It's normally I contact David Nicandri and say, can we talk about the recent discovery of an intact mammoth? Or can we talk about the transit of Venus? Or can we have a conversation about the nature of exploration? But this time he contacted me and said, citizen, in his usual way, there's this extraordinary discovery in, in Rhode Island uh, that probably confirms that one of Cook's ships, maybe the most famous, the Endeavor, had many lives after that exploration and eventually wound up sunk in, in a harbor in Ro Rhode Island. And he wanted to come on the program to talk about this exciting discovery. And he was like a child with enthusiasm for this extraordinary moment in the history of exploration. And I had this picture that we would find the ship and we would bring it up and we would, oh yeah, there'd be a few rotten timbers and we would replace them. And then you and I would be able to travel to uh, Rhode Island and, and see this thing floating. 
but of course it's just a, a kind of spongy outline of what that uh, that ship once was but it's very exciting news in in exploration circles and very very exciting to our friend McCandry who among other things is a scholar as you say of, of Captain James Cook Let's go to the conversation now, if we might, sir. Our friend and our Enlightenment correspondent, Mr. David McCandry, formerly the director of the Washington State Historical Society, our conversation about the discovery of the endeavor. From time to time, we bring in our correspondent for the Republic of Letters and the Enlightenment, Mr. David McCandry of Washington State, formerly the director of the Washington State Historical Society, the author now of a number of books, two on the Lewis and Clark expedition, and one on Captain James Cook. Uh, Dave, welcome to the Jefferson Hour. I think there's news in the world of Captain Cook. Yeah, the Cook world has been literally a buzz uh, the last uh, week or so with the uh, uh, perhaps premature disclosure, we can come back to that, of the news that Captain Cook's first first uh, trans-oceanic Craft, the Endeavor, uh, was discovered uh, in uh, Newport, Rhode Island Harbor, there at Narragansett Bay. Uh, there's a lot of contention between the Australians and the Americans about that. We, uh, we can unpack that dispute, uh, perhaps in due course. But literally, Clay, everyone who knows me, who has my email or text, uh, uh, or uh, uh, text can send me a text, has sent me a link to this discovery. So. Uh, news outlets all over the world have covered it, which is uh, an interesting phenomenon in itself, which perhaps we can discuss uh, at greater length. For those who might not know, tell us who uh, James Cook was. Born 1728, died February 14th, 1779. Yes, uh, 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 made his reputation in the British Royal Navy during uh, the Seven Years' War, what we in North America call the French and Indian War. The Quebec campaign in particular uh, later surveyed uh, the island of Newfoundland, uh, was clearly one of the top talents in the cartographic realm, came to the attention of the higher-ups in the Admiralty, so that when the combination of the Royal Society and the Royal Navy wanted to dispatch an astronomical crew uh, to the four corners of the world, literally, to uh, to observe the transit of Venus in 1769. Cook got that command as a mere lieutenant at the courtesy title of captain, even on his first voyage. Uh, the voyage uh, was successful uh, to a considerable degree. There were some ups and downs. Maybe we can talk about that. But he got two subsequent commissions, uh, Another epic voyage in the Southern Hemisphere that circumnavigated Antarctica. And then his third and last voyage, which commenced in the noteworthy month of July 1776 in search of the Northwest Passage. And it was on that voyage that he was killed in Hawaii. So I think it's fair to say that that his rise was based on meritocracy. He didn't come from the nobility or from one of the aristocratic families of Britain. He didn't buy his way into his, um, his lieutenancy and beyond. That this, He began as a relatively, um, he began in a, in, a, in, a, in a really sort of journeyman way, bringing coal to London, didn't he? That's exactly true, Clay. You, everyone or most people are familiar with the expression uh, 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 somebody will say, well, that's like taking coals to Newcastle, meaning complete 
superfluousness. Uh, uh, no need to take coals to Newcastle since that is the source of the great colliery and uh, in industrial revolution era England and a whole fleet of colliers uh, would, uh, including one that Cook uh, early on in his career, he, he was a sailing master. Um, those ships would, would sail seven or eight times a year from northern England down to London and return. Uh, and in between coal conveying trips to London, they would sometimes uh, uh, sail into the Baltic ports, pick up lumber, pitch, and whatnot, other trade goods. And so that's how Cook got his, he, yes, you're right, he grew up uh, in an agricultural realm. He was a yeoman farmer. His, his family were yeoman farmers, but he got his start working in some ship chandleries, then went to sea in the coal trade. Uh, as kind of a lateral move, he transferred to the Royal Navy right on the cusp of the commencement of the Seven Years' War, and that's what gave him his platform in Quebec, later Newfoundland, and that's uh, how he uh, rose through the ranks in the meritocratic realm, uh, exactly as you describe it. The Royal Navy was probably one of the few institutions in Britain at that time uh, that someone of modest means and agrarian background like Cook to rise to the top, um, as indeed he did to great fame and renown. And I maintain that had he lived long enough, actually, he would have become an admiral in the Royal Navy. But of course, he did die, as you cite, in Hawaii in February 1779. So he obviously had some uh, real gifts, and one of them was cartography. He, you know, he he solved many of the remaining problems of the celestial world of the oceans, particularly of the Pacific and the Southern Oceans. He had some kind of a capacity to read oceanic landscapes. Where does that come from? Well, it's it's a very good question, uh, Clay. Uh, he, he he did have talent, but as I, as I wrote in, uh, in my book, Captain Cook rediscovered. I think Captain Cook's true differentiating factor was his uh, ineffability, his grit, his determination. He just simply stuck to a job beyond the patience of, of everyone else who was sailing with him, whether it was the naturalists or scientists who were traveling with him, most of his uh, 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 senior lieutenants, uh, certainly many of the seamen. Uh, Cook never seemed to get tired of a mission placed in front of him. And so he, he did, in fact, have, I, I, to use a fancy term, he, when, in, when he was uh, in Quebec and in Newfoundland, he had kind of this cognitive opening. I mean, it's hard to explain. Some people just have these gifts. He had, he had an ability to translate a landscape or a seascape in front of him and translate it to cartographic form. And it seems generally well conceded at this point that uh, after 10 years in the Royal Navy, um, maybe not even that long, there was no one who was a more accomplished map maker than James Cook. And that is, it is that skill primarily that landed him the job uh, for the uh, Transit of Venus mission to Endeavour, which he commanded aboard a former collier, the Earl of Pembroke, it was known. The ship was bought by the Royal Navy. Its name was changed to Endeavour, uh, and it was on that craft that he sailed to uh, Tahiti, New Zealand, Australia, and elsewhere on the first uh, uh, circumnavigation. And this is the ship 
that is the center of the recent marine archaeological controversy there in Narragansett Bay. I certainly want to get to that. Just to say that a collier is sort of a barge. It is, it's not the kind of ship you would necessarily think of to make a circumnavigation of the world. And these were largely sailing in coastal waters. So it's a very sort of um, uh, industrial use of this, um, uh, of, of this sort of ship. And just to say one more thing about his cartographical talents, David, yeah, you know, when John Logan Allen, the great Lewis and Clark geographer, says that a certain percentage of people, he says under 10%, can see as if from 38,000 feet. They can be in a landscape, and say the Lewis and Clark landscape of the Bitterroot Mountains, and it's as if they were in a hot air balloon or an airplane looking down. They can see how land works, how the contours work, how the drainages work, and so on. And most of us can't do this. And so it's not just for Cook sailing along these inlets, say, in the Aleutians, he's able to see how the currents are working, how the water temperature is working, how the cloud cover and the, the prevailing weather patterns work. It's a complicated way to read landscape or oceanic landscape, isn't it? Yes, especially at sea, because uh, topographical surveyors have literally the stability of the earth underneath their feet. So imagine approximating the same degree of accuracy or even exceeding it on a ship at sea where trying to establish latitude and longitude is complicated. You have a rocking ship, uh, tides, currents, other complexities. And so Cook did both terrestrial survey when he, when he was in a port or in a harbor. Uh, he would, he would, and, and it's also point, important to point out he had very able, very able assistants who could help him accomplish this work. It's not as if Cook himself did all of the cartography associated with his voyages, but it must be said he supervised it, although he could do some in his own right as well. So it was an exceptional talent. Uh, just to take two names in North American geography that uh, to, to speak to John Logan Allen's point, William Clark was certainly an adequate surveyor or cartographer, but someone like David Thompson from the Northwest Company, he was one of those guys who on a mountaintop, it was as if he was uh, 10,000, 15,000 feet higher uh, he was a more accomplished geographer than even William Clark. So yes, there was a there was there were C there were C students in cartography, B students, A students. Cook was an A student cartographer. Nice to see you getting in a cheap shot about Lewis and Clark there, but we'll just go on at this point. <laughs> we need to take a short break from this conversation with Clay Jenkinson and David DeCandry, but we'll return in just a moment. You're listening to the Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to the Thomas Jefferson Hour, this week's special conversation between Clay Jenkinson and David DeCandry. And uh, the two of you had been talking about navigation, etc., and DeCandry got in what you called, I think, a cheap shot about Lewis and Clark uh, and their, their methods of navigation and record keeping. Uh, but then you pick up the conversation asking him about the transit of Venus. And you actually talk about Jefferson owning one of Cook's journals, The Third Voyage in the Search for the Northwest Passage, that's listed in Jefferson's catalog. It was fascinating. You know, so the transit of Venus is something that occurs twice in around eight years, every 150 years or so. We've actually had both of them recently in our time, and I was able to observe one of them uh, and the Candry at another place in America. But this was so exciting to the people of the Enlightenment. There were whole groups that were sent out to India and to the, the far north and to the South Seas, including, of course, Captain Cook to Tahiti, to observe this. Because when the when Venus passes across the disk of the sun, which it only does very, very seldom, this is a chance to sort of correct your, your clock, is to retune yourself because the universe is sort of lifting its curtain and showing you its inner clock-like workings. And so for the for the men of the Enlightenment, this was exciting. And, and that's the value of our friend Nicandri, because he is our Enlightenment correspondent. And we tend to take all this for granted. David, we always say, oh, well, the universe is 14 billion years old and the, you know began with a big bang. And there are many, many cosmoses and billions of galaxies and so on. Well, all of this is something that we've long since come to terms with. But for the people of the Enlightenment, people like Jefferson, this was like what a dinosaur means to a seven-year-old in our time. Well, let's go back to the conversation now. And uh, uh, you and Nicandria talking about the transit of Venus and Lewis and Clark's navigation. And I would defend Lewis's longitude, by the way. It was not as accurate as David Thompson's, but that was an uncharacteristic cheap shot. But let's let David have his way with it. Very good. I think the transit of Venus is something that happens not very often, a couple of times over about an eight-year period, every 150 or so years. And that's when the planet Venus crosses between us and the sun. And if you observe when it enters into the sphere of the sun and when it exits, and keep accurate time um, recordings of, of all of that, you can determine an enormous amount how far we are from the sun, how the, the periodicity of the planets and their orbits. This is one of those rare moments when the universe sort of lifts its curtain and shows you its inner workings. And, you know, Jefferson and people like him thought that the universe was a sort of a clock, a celestial timepiece. And once in a while, that clock shows its gears and the transit of Venus captured the imagination of the Enlightenment. And everyone was trying to get in on this, including Thomas Jefferson, who hired, uh, who actually um, sent to Philadelphia to get better chronometers and better telescopes uh, because he was trying to observe this thing at Monticello both on both occasions, particularly the second one. And it was that quest, that sort of astronomical Enlightenment quest that the British sent Cook to Tahiti to observe because why? They needed to triangulate, isn't that it? Uh, that's essentially it, yes, Clay. So in the early 17th century, Edmund Halley 
and other astronomers. Of course, this is in the immediate post-Galilean world of astronomy, greater uh, precision with the telescopes. They were able to denote certain astronomical phenomenon, one of which was uh, the fact that the planet's interior to Earth that is to say, between Earth and the Sun, there was a periodicity to that. So every 112 years, approximately, Venus would pass between Earth and Sun. Now you can see a little black dot pass across the Sun's face. Mercury more often because it revolves around the Sun uh, more rapidly. Theoretically, if you were on Mars, you would every, every 100 years or so, you'd see Earth pass in front of the Sun. Of course, our lunar eclipses are the best-known version of this phenomenon, except the, the, the moon is a much bigger object because it's more proximate, and its eclipse, its transit across the face of the sun can be total, as it was in the most recent total eclipse we had a couple of years back that we talked about at that time. So these uh, the, the, the astronomers predicted the regularity of this um, there because the because these transits happen in eight, uh, they appear every 112 years, but in eight-year twin occurrences. So the 1761 occurrence was was kind of bungled. Britain, which was in the middle of the Seven Years' War, didn't lend its best effort. So when the 1769 cycle was coming around, that's when the Royal Society, a learned society in Great Britain, and the Royal Navy decided to send a ship to the South Pacific. But you're right. The key is triangulation. In order to fix specifically one's latitude and, and delineate a coastline, you need several vantage points, and then through a triangulation, one can uh, one can draw a map or a chart um, uh, more accurately. It's a, it's a form of geometry. The transit through an even this kind of cosmic triangulation, the calculation. It's called the parallax. It's very complicated. I can't begin to describe because it's not only turned distending angles and creating a baseline, there's also a time component needing to measure when the transit of Venus starts and when it ends at different points in the world. So it was a, it was the, other than botany, it's a, uh, and maybe uh, the early uh, uh, aspects of, of my biology and medicine in that era, the transit of Venus was one of the biggest deals in Enlightenment era science. And that's what launched Cook into the big time uh, of the Enlightenment and um, scientific endeavor, to use a particularly pertinent word, you and I have been fortunate because here on the Jefferson Hour, we have had a chance to talk about the transit of Venus in our own time. I observed it here in Dakota, and you observed it there on the West Coast. And then we both were able to observe the more frequent total eclipse of the sun. I think the next one is 2024, isn't it? Uh, something like that, yes. And of course, there's always... We're talking about in North America, within, within our range of access, um, there's, there's seemingly a total eclipse somewhere in the world every year. But in our part of the globe, more generally put, uh, uh, I think the next one's still several years out, yes. So these are, these, these are fun for us. They were, um, they were ecstatically interesting. These people were uh, obsessed, fixated, thrilled, um, delighted as never before to be able to coordinate their understanding of the solar system with this sort of um, baseline check that the transit of Venus gave, and, and so do lunar eclipses and solar eclipses. 
for that matter. So what was, just to get us ready to talk about this discovery, what was, what was, what was Captain Cook to Thomas Jefferson? How would Jefferson have, have thought about Cook? Jefferson would have been familiar with Cook's uh, first voyage uh, upon its uh, successful uh, completion. The transit was in June of 1769. By 1770, uh, Cook was back. By 1772, the Admiralty editor John Hawksworth had published an account of Cook's first voyage aboard Endeavour, largely based upon Joseph Banks's journal, not Cook's. Banks was actually the more celebrated figure attached with that expedition, although it's on its return. Cook, I mean, Cook was just a journeyman lieutenant when he left. Shortly after he and Banks returned from Tahiti, New Zealand, Australia on the Endeavour voyage, uh, his, uh, he was promoted, his career uh, was on a was on a prominent trajectory, and so when Hawksworth published this account of this great voyage uh, to the uh, South Pacific, surely Jefferson would have been familiar with it. And we know for a fact uh, from looking at the catalog that uh, Jefferson had a copy of the third voyage in search of the Northwest Passage of Cook, and that would have been even more important to Jefferson because that last voyage of Cook's impinged on the west coast of North America. And at that point, it began to take on uh, aspects of national, dare I say, imperial concern from Jefferson's worldview. Uh, and so uh, Cook was, was, was the most famous navigator of his era. Anyone who was in the Enlightenment's Republic of Letters was very well versed in the broad pattern of Cook's career. That includes not only Thomas Jefferson, but also, as I've argued in some of my publications, Meriwether Lewis as well. So Jefferson got to Britain in 1786. So by now, Captain Cook was dead. Had Cook been alive and had he been in Britain, Jefferson would certainly have wanted to try to meet him. But he did know somebody from the Cook world. He knew John Ledyard from the third voyage, and Ledyard was a Connecticut Yankee who uh, was with uh, Cook in the end uh, and wrote a book about it, uh, which is quite a fine book, and then became a sort of pal of Jefferson's and concocted with Jefferson the scheme of circumambulating the globe, walking around the entire planet. That didn't actually work out, although he got pretty close. So Jefferson would have been quizzing Ledyard in Paris, wouldn't he, about Cook? Yes, and, and, and perhaps there was one other person that knew Cook. This is largely circumstantial evidence, but it's pretty solid. Benjamin Franklin returned to uh, Great Britain uh, after the ruckus with the colonies. Uh, he was the Pennsylvania colon, colonial agent to Parliament. He returned to Great Britain really just on the eve of Cook's departure and was still there when Cook would have returned, and, and Franklin was a member of the same Royal Society that I've referred to a couple of times, Cook was later inducted into the same Royal Society. There's no, uh, as I say, it's circumstantial evidence, but strongly suggestive that Benjamin Franklin himself actually did meet Cook in London after his return from the second voyage and prior to departing. On the third and, and fatal voyage. And just one last thing about all this. The whole Western Europe's love affair, a fascination with Tahiti, the Polynesian sort of eroticism, the Garden of Eden, the perfect climate, the sense of a people that don't have to work and are not ashamed of their nudity, who are generous to a fault, and who seem to be living in some sort of a 
paradisical way and yet never knew Jesus, never knew the older New Testaments. That whole trope, that massively influential idea uh, begins not exactly with Cook, but Cook solidified it. Absolutely. Um, because there were other Enlightenment-era explorers who were in the same waters, uh, uh, Tahiti in particular. Actually, he, Cook was not the first British explorer uh, to reach Tahiti. In fact, he was sent to Tahiti because previous British navigators had kind of stumbled on the island, which also Bougainville, the famous French explorer, also did in the meantime. So it wasn't just Cook and accounts of Cook. There was was a, a time of great ferment, but no less a figure than Sigmund Freud in his Civilization and its Discontents, published in the 1930s, said that Europe's familiarity with the lifestyle of people in Polynesia was one of the most dislocating events in the history of Western civilization. Uh, it was literally a cultural revolution. And these challenged our, our views of, of Christianity and religion. They challenged our views of property. Um, this was a very potent challenge to what we assumed was the nature of things with kind of a capital N. And when you discover that there are peoples living in the world who have never been involved in that paradigm and seem to be doing well, in fact, seem to be thriving and maybe happier than we are, that's going to cause a lot of Enlightenment thinkers to do some wrestling with ideas, isn't it? Well, because uh, you know the French Enlightenment better than I do, Clay, but uh, people like Rousseau and Voltaire, and French Enlightenment in particular, was very fascinated about what's natural man like, because they assumed correctly that Western civilization had a lot of incrustations upon it, in terms of class structure, religious doctrine, etc. And, uh, and so the French theorists uh, were really wondering, you know, if we could roll back the clock, what was human life like? So what about the endeavor? It begins as a collier uh, boat. It's called the Earl of Pembroke. It becomes the endeavor. It goes to Tahiti. What has happened and why is it important? Subsequent to its return, now it's, it's the endeavor is still in the Royal Navy register. It's immediate a, a, a assignment because Cook goes off on his second expedition circumnavigating Antarctica, looking for Terra Australis Incognita, which he doesn't find. That's negative discovery at its best. He proves that it doesn't exist. So Cook goes off with two other ships. His command ship is the Resolution. He has a consort adventure. The Endeavour voyage was just a one-ship Endeavour. Endeavour is redeployed in the colonial contest with the Bourbon powers over the ownership of the Falkland Islands also known as the Malwines, the Malvinas. Uh, and so uh, the, the, uh, the Endeavor is a supply ship. It's bringing uh, settlers, it's bringing soldiers, bringing supplies to and from England to the Falkland Islands. Uh, having gone around the world uh, with Cook, several transoceanic voyages serving the Falklands, it falls into a state of disrepair and it's sold to uh, uh, someone in the, in the whaling industry. And it's renamed the Lord Sandwich. Uh, it's eventually renamed the Lord Sandwich. Um, so uh, it, it, the, the Navy then reacquires the ship because in the meantime, Lexington and Concord have happened. The, in other words, the, the War of Independence in the American colonies has broken out. The Royal Navy needs a huge fleet of transports to move 
troops to North America, many of them, most of them, in fact, Hessians, the famous Hessians from the battles in New Jersey that uh, Washington caught napping literally almost with their pants down. Uh, that's how we know the Hessians most famously. But uh, uh, so the, the Endeavor, now renamed the Lord, Lord Sandwich, becomes a part of this um, 80, 90 ship transport fleet which is going to take the Hessians from the Baltic ports. They stop briefly in, in England, and then they're moved to uh, New York, New Jersey, and eventually to Rhode Island over in, the, uh, in, the, in the early uh, few years of the, uh, of the American Revolution. The ship, because the Navy had gotten rid of it initially because it was in a state of disrepair. There were some, it, was, it was made fit enough to serve as a transport but after the Hessians and the transport armada reached North America, most of that fleet returned to Great Britain for other duty. But the, but the Lord Sandwich, nay, Endeavor, actually it was the Earl of Pembroke, actually was its original name, it was in such a state of disrepair that it became a prison ship in Newport Harbor. So imagine this, Clay. Here's a ship that originally carried coal, then was carrying hundreds of botanical specimens and back to England and astronomers on the way there. Then it was carrying soldiers to put down a colonial rebellion and ends up being a prison ship almost right out of Les Miserables uh, with uh, terrible conditions, actually scandalously so. The American colonial rebels held in the hold of what had once been Endeavor. And... Um, uh, as you know, uh, listeners to the Thomas Jefferson Hour know so well, uh, through in no small measure the efforts of Benjamin Franklin, the aforementioned, France comes into the war on the American side. News of that is publicized in, uh, I think, in March of 1778. And the British, in order to fortify Newport Harbor, scuttle the endeavor what now the Earl of Sandwich, the old Endeavor, and several other craft in Narragansett Bay in order to forestall the French fleet from making a successful attack on Newport. And that is how the Endeavor ends up buried in the mud until it's discovered here of late, seemingly. We'll get to that dispute shortly. That's how Cook's first voyage ship ends up at the bottom of Narragansett Bay. We need to take a short break from this conversation between Clay Jenkinson and David DeCandry talking about Captain Cook and the possible discovery of the endeavor. But we'll return to this conversation in just a moment. You're listening to The Thomas Jefferson Hour.
Welcome back to this special one-on-one edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour, our conversation with David DeCandre, actually my conversation, you know, several times in the course of this interview, he said, where's, where's Swenson? <laughs> and where's the semi-permanent guest host? I said, you were busy with a, you know, a really ambitious new project, but he, he, he felt a loss that you were not there to protect him. Oh, he's such a kind fellow. He's a, he's a wonderful friend of mine he, you know he comes to our uh, Lewis and Clark retreats and and is uh, <laughs> hilarious and his he loves to argue in the best sense oh and he's got such a command of language he loves language and he loves a slightly formalized language which I make fun of but but in this interview you know, I don't really know a lot about what happened to the boats to the ships that that uh, Captain Cook traveled in in fact I'd never really thought about it before I had thought about what happened at the keel boat, Lewis and Clark's boat that was sent back to St. Louis in 185. But I've never really thought about Cook's watercraft. And so David is teaching us all what we know about this. And I, and he used the term scuttle. And I, I thought I knew what that meant, but I asked him to define it. Let's listen. So to scuttle is to sink. Yes. It's to scuttle is to sink on purpose. So it's, it's a way of creating impediments so that a, a, a man of war, as it were, a French man of war, could, uh, can't, can't sink. Because the, the English would know where the ships are scuttled, they can navigate their way around it. But an opposing Navy might not know where the uh, below-the-surface impediments, typically there would be shoals or rocks. So a host of these old transports, including... Cook's old ship were scuttled in uh, Narragansett Bay in 1778, and there it lay until its recent discovery. To get this straight, this has to be one of the most storied ships in human history. It begins as a collier. It takes Cook on an Enlightenment voyage to Tahiti and back. Then it goes to the Falklands as a colonial settler supply ship. Then um, it winds up um, being a, a transport ship for the Hessians coming to uh, put down the American rebellion, then a prison ship in Rhode Island. Finally, it's sunk, it's scuttled so that it can prevent the French from getting easy access to that shore. And it's been sitting in the mud now for a couple of hundred years. And suddenly it's discovered? Well, people have had a sense that Cook's ship, Endeavor, was... There was kind of this distant memory that Cook's ship may lay at the bottom uh, of uh, of Narragansett Bay, and here's here's the great irony: resolution also rests on the bottom of Newport Newport's harbor. Both of Cook's ships have lay in the mud for uh, well over 150 years, unbeknownst uh, to scholars until it was recently uh, kind of sorted out by one of the figures that's uh, prominent in the recent controversy with Aus- with Australia, uh, Dr. Abbas, the, the marine archaeologist. So um, so not only was Endeavor, not only did Endeavor end up in the mud at Newport, Resolution did too, because like Endeavor, it was later sold by the Royal Navy. It also became a whaler in the French whaling fleet, it ended up as a hulk on Newport Harbor, and it sank there at its dock. So that's the difference. Endeavor was purposefully scuttled to thwart a French naval invasion. Resolution, 50 years later, 
as a as a as a hulk just simply sank at the dock uh, where it, where it was last reposed. And uh, but there was a memory, probably we think from resolution that that was kind of a local legend. It figured figured in a. Uh, 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 a poem written by an English travel writer in the 1850s. He thought it was Endeavor, but actually it was an, uh, it was Resolution. So, you know, one time, Clay, Stephen Ambrose famously said in referencing a, uh, uh, an epic incident in the Lewis and Clark expedition, when they, uh, when they get to, the expedition gets to the Shoshone homeland and Sacagawea meets her brother, Kamea Wade, who's now the chief of the tribe, and he's the guy Lewis and Clark have to get horses from in order to continue the expedition westward. Ambrose says famously, no scriptwriter would dare invent a scene. Well, no scriptwriter would dare invent a scenario in which both of Cook's ships on three epic circumnavigations would end up sunk for different reasons in the same American harbor. But they did. What kind of condition is the endeavor in at this moment? Where is it at this moment? It's a, a, a remnant. It's, it has no integrity. I mean, people should get the image that this is like the Titanic, uh, which because it's metal, you can, it, although in a severely rusted condition, you can you can largely uh, get a sense of the, sh- the shape of that ill-fated uh, ship we're, we're talking about uh, maybe the, the keel some some cross beams we're now into the realm clay although i had a, i had a career in material culture uh as a museum curator and a museum director this is an aspect of the cook story i'm not expert in but uh, but because there's been an underwater archaeology project in rhode island running since for 20 years now trying to ascertain which of these uh, uh, ships uh, in Narragansett Bay is Cook's famous endeavor. There, there's, there's a lot of research that the listeners to the Thomas Jefferson Hour uh, can access online. But I want to come back to a point you made earlier, Clay. I just want to give emphasis to it. And I've, argued, I've quibbled with the fact that, that the Endeavor voyage is privileged in Cook historiography because it was the first uh, and because of, because of the bank's connection um, it, uh, in the uh, in the in the worldwide historiography of Cook, the first voyage gets, I think, and I've argued, and Captain Cook rediscovered, gets a disproportionate historiographic attention. It's like the first child in the family photo album. Uh, the oldest child, I can attest, is the youngest of my family. The older children, there's a lot more photographs of them. By the time the younger kids come along, not as many photos. That's kind of my analogy for. Cook's the history of Cook's craft. Endeavor gets a lot of attention, um, but it is nonetheless, and this speaks to the worldwide attention. This recent contretemps that's cropped up between archaeologists in Australia and and in the United States. Endeavor is unquestionably one of the most famous ships in world history. The only one I can, I mean, only, I mean, it's up there in the same class, if if not exceeding Francis Drake's Golden Hind. Columbus's craft, Nina Pinta, Santa Maria, we all remember that from our childhood days, or even Lewis and Clark's keelboat, which was unnamed, but it's a famous craft in, in nautical history. So uh, uh, the endeavor, in fact, even became adopted by NASA for the fifth and last space shuttle. It was it was modeled, the name 
was taken from the name of Cook's first vessel that he sailed to the South Pacific for the uh, uh, for the transit of Venus. So this is a celebrated ship. That's why it has drawn the attention of marine archaeologists in Australia and in and in uh, Rhode Island. And that's why it's the center of this recent controversy. I do want to get to the controversy. We only have a few minutes left, but let me ask this question: Can Endeavour be reconstituted in any way? No. There's only a few rotten timbers, crossbeam, maybe elements of the keel. I mean, this was a wooden ship. It's been in the in salt water, in the mud, 250 years now. So there's not much left. But but the but the archaeologists who know these things think it's possible because of the structural reconfiguration of one element or another of the wooden frame of the ship. They think it's possible to be able to determine which of the ships that were scuttled in 1778 is the endeavor. And that gets to the source of the recent controversy. And what exactly is the controversy and how does Australia play a role in it? Well, it's difficult to sort out, Clay. I mean, I, I, I can only read what other people have read in, in press accounts. That I mean, it's been in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, television stations in Australia and England, all over the United States and Canada. So uh, that just speaks, ironically, to the fascination people have with Cook himself and, and this ship in particular, which is perhaps a whole separate conversation. Um, but... Um, uh, uh, it's but the essence of the debate seems to be a breach of the agreement between the Australian sector, which has been funding the research in Rhode Island by the Rhode Island Maritime Archaeological Survey. It, it seems as if there was an agreement that any announcement about the ultimate discovery and identification of Endeavour would be a joint announcement, but it seems as if the Rhode Islanders think the Aussies jump the gun trying to perhaps um, seize some credit or get, gather some attention to themselves that the principal archaeologist, Dr. Abbas, in Rhode Island, she is either reluctant to or thinks she needs more evidence before she determines that the recent work has in fact led to the identification of Endeavor. But since it is in a state of advanced um, dissolution and there's not much left there, there's no way in which we can use 3D imaging or some way of determining things about this ship that we might not otherwise have known or even to recreate a version of it based upon some new gizmo of imaging? Well, it's like any other aspect of archaeology. I mean, from a few neck bones, vertebrae, rib bones, paleontologists have been able to construct a vision of, of, of a brontosaurus or a tyrannosaurus rex. Uh, so... It would be the same dynamic. But the end product is the discovery, right? I mean, there's um, you're not going to be able to go witness this through special glass lenses or something. This is something that is never going to be accessible except by some underwater imaging. Well, no, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Uh, I think once it's been identified, once it's been identified, I mean, to me, it's within the realm of possibility that they could haul it up, pieces of it to the surface, and it might be memorialized, etc. Amazing. We're going to have to leave it there, but let me ask you this last question. Uh, what's your excitement level about this on a scale of 1 to 100? Are you ecstatic and can't wait to go to Rhode Island, or is this something you take under advisement? How, how big a deal is this for you? Well, I think my biggest takeaway, Clay, is 
uh, because uh, it is the the fact that this discovery should have generated so much attention. I mean, if there were, if Lewis and Clark's frame boat, for example, if it were somehow uncovered, would it generate the same kind of international attention? I was curious when I when I, when I saw a report in my daily news feed uh, on my on my on my laptop. I saw a story from the New York Times. And at the end of the, many of your listeners would be familiar with this. There's a little survey at the end, which is mostly for marketing purposes. Uh, they, they're trying to get demographic data. But I, but I clicked on the survey. And so the question on this survey, how familiar, if at all, are you with the history of British explorer James Cook? And when I logged on, there were 1,258 people who had viewed that story. 9% were very familiar, 54% were somewhat familiar, 34% not familiar at all. Clay, I was just astounded that over 60% of the people looking at this story, now this wasn't a scientific survey, not suggesting it was, but still, a little over 60% of the people viewing this story had some rough familiarity with Cook's um, uh, story, and I found that fascinating and somewhat heartening. Because uh, the the mystique of the explorers still exists, I think that's a good thing. As problematic as many of, uh, aspects of their career turned out to be, but I think uh, the spirit of uh, of adventure, spirit of intellectual curiosity, the fact that that still exists, is a good thing. And uh, that's uh, what my that's my main takeaway from the public interest in the su supposed rediscovery of Cook's endeavor. We'll leave it at that for the moment. Thank you, Dave DeCandry of the Washington State Historical Society, the former executive director, the author of a number of books, including Captain Cook Rediscovered. We'll follow this story as it continues. We'll see you next time that we need the Enlightenment Report here on the Thomas Jefferson Hour. A marvelous conversation. I so enjoy listening to David Nicandri, to the two of you, and, and a fascinating subject as well. I hope our listeners are as charmed by it as, as we are. You know, there was something in Jefferson's time called the Republic of Letters, and it sort of meant the voluntary community of people who lived all over the planet who knew each other or of each other and read each other's works and corresponded if they could, and they formed a kind of... Uh, uh, virtual club, egging each other on, encouraging each other to think more rationally and to take advantage of the best uh, recent discoveries. And so I feel that David and I are part of a, a current republic of letters, and it's made possible by electronic communication much more simply than it would have been for Jefferson sending a letter that would take two or three or five months to reach Prague or Warsaw. But the Republic of Letters matters. And, and whenever something happens, sort of in the Enlightenment's broad scope, Nicandri pops up and says, let's talk about this citizen. And so it's, it's a great joy to be able to sort of monitor this. And as you have said, we're living in this extraordinary time of exploration. It's just not a bunch of guys in a boat. Now our, our telescopes and our and our amazing array of listening devices and the sort of infrared cameras and deep sea um, probes are changing the our understanding of the world. The universe, really. Yeah, the, the James Webb Telescope, I am just fascinated by it. And I think it's such a, 
a testament to uh, human achievement and cooperation and um, how long it took to build. And uh, the cost, of course, was astronomical. But, you know, in the end, when the discoveries begin to roll in, the last thing that will be talked about was the budget, I think. And when um, will that be? When will we get our first image? Sometime this summer. They're already uh, tweaking the array of the mirrors, and I'm, I'm terrible. I mean, I, I can't understand why this isn't the lead item on news broadcasts. I end up going to YouTube and checking the NASA channel every day to, to see what's new, but it's it's fascinating, and boy— you know, Jefferson would have to sit down and rub his head uh, and uh, get over a possible migraine if he knew about this. Um, but I can't imagine anything but the greatest fascination and support coming from Jefferson. Well, he'd want to buy one, of course, on credit. <laughs> Good luck he'd, on he'd that. He'd have to have his own miniature version <laughs> of the thing. He would certainly, if it were possible, to subscribe to be a supporter or to get you know daily updates on what it's looking at. You can imagine uh, how thrilled he would be by this because Jefferson looked at the universe around him and thought there's so much more to know. Knowledge is power. The more we know, the more we can improve the happiness of humankind and, and, and coordinate our, our public systems to nature with a capital N. So this would be one of the great uh, moments in his life. And as you say, we've gotten a little bit lackluster about things like this. Sir, we are out of time for this week. I want to thank you for this great conversation with David Nicandri. I could just listen to that guy. And uh, look forward to more conversations with him in upcoming weeks. But with that, sir, uh, we need to say goodbye. Thanks to all of you. We'll see you next week for another important edition of the Thomas Jefferson Hour. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is brought to you each week by Dakota Sky Education. The program is distributed nationally by Prairie Public. President Thomas Jefferson lived from 1743 to 1826, and this program presents his views. President Jefferson is portrayed by the award-winning humanities scholar and author Clay S. Jenkinson. To obtain a copy of this or any show for a $12 donation, please call 701-575-0727. This program is also available online at jeffersonhour.com and on Apple Podcasts. If you'd like to correspond with President Jefferson or submit a question for him to answer on the program, please visit the website at jeffersonhour.com. The Thomas Jefferson Hour is produced at Makoche Recording Studios in Bismarck, North Dakota. Bach Cello Suite No. 3 in C Major by Stephen Swinford. Thank you for listening. Please tune in again next week for another thought-provoking, historically accurate program, Through the Eyes of Thomas Jefferson.